pray. Lord, we come to your house week after week, understanding that these buildings are not your house. We, your people, are your house. You dwell in us. You sent your spirit to take up residence in our hearts, in our souls. And you speak to us by your spirit through the word of God. Lord, how we love to hear the word of God proclaimed and explained and even just read every morning. Lord, how kind you have been to us to give us your word and to give us all the revelation that we need in a single book. I pray, Father, that you would give us a taste for it, give us a hunger and a thirst for it that transcends a hunger and thirst for anything else. And along the way, Father, I pray that you would protect us from misunderstanding or the misuse of the Word of God. I pray that you'd protect us from error. Anoint this hour, Father, by your Spirit. Come in power and change us. Father, anyone who is here, who has yet to bend the knee to Jesus Christ, to surrender to his will, to surrender to his Lordship, that today they would find in him the Savior you promised to be. No, Father, we, no amount of preaching can accomplish that. You must do it. And so we ask you to, believing that this is your desire and your will. And so we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Grace never promotes a life of sin. Rather, it emancipates us from slavery to sin. Stand together with me now and let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. Now, I have a, a long way to go and a short time to get there. And so uh, you'll have to listen fast because best I can, I'm going to be speaking fast. I want to get through chapter or uh, verse 14 today which will end this little section so we can start on the second half of this chapter next week and hopefully be done with chapter six um, and so now that you have your bible open let's read this text this again is romans 6 1 through 14. do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into christ were baptized into his death we were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So 
You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to, uh, to sin, your members to sin as instruments of un unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from the dead, from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. You know, as I look across the landscape of churches and Christians in our land, it occurs to me that this passage of Scripture is especially relevant, not just for you individually, but for our whole culture that calls itself Christian. When I was a kid growing up, you know, uh, don't start yawning at that, right? I remember when my dad would say, when I was a kid. Well, when I was a kid growing up in church, it seemed like the big concern among those who were, you know, kind of moving and shaking the church was that Christians were so separated from the real world that they really had no discernible gospel influence upon anyone except themselves. And that ideology gained traction all across the country, and things began to change. It's almost as if the leaders of that era became convinced that if they were ever going to reach the world, God's people would have to become like the world. Indeed, the decades that followed proved that out. They proved that this approach to life and ministry would come to rule the day, as it were. You may remember reading about the scourge of modernism, in, that was before my day. And then there came uh, seeker sensitivity. It brought in pragmatism. And then came the emergent church, in which uh, there was a, a fundamental shift in their view of marriage and worship, the Lord's table. They reimagined all of these things. Preaching and ministry and, and even in their preaching, they would incorporate vulgar language, cursing, as it were. Not as it were, I mean genuinely cursing from the pulpit just to, what, prove that pastors are sinners too? I recall reading an article in 2005 by Joel Bells, who is the founder of World Magazine, who was writing an article bemoaning this shift in Christian culture. He wrote this. More often, people who claim to be Christians pursue the same, the same selfish ambitions, worship the same worthless idols, enjoy the same sinful pleasures, watch the same ungodly entertainments, and grasp for the same greedy possessions as everyone else. There is, shockingly, little difference between the way that Christians and non-Christians behave. A recent report, he writes from Princeton Religion Research Center claimed, and I quote, religion has gained ground, but morality is losing ground. The report showed that increases in church attendance and Bible reading have been offset by the simultaneous decline in morality among churchgoers, end quote. When Bells speaks of morality, I think what he means is holiness. 
Churches have become bigger, more powerful, and yet they become more unholy. When the world came into the church, the church became like the world, and holiness went out the window. And I suspect that if the Apostle Paul's opponents were alive and well today, they would come to Paul and say, you see, you see, this is exactly what we, what we were complaining about. It's exactly what we warned you of. Preaching a grace that superabounds over every kind of sin will only lead people to abandon any scruples about personal sin and righteousness. And they'll become like the godless Gentiles who gave themselves to every kind of debauchery in the name of God. And frankly, in many occasions, they would be absolutely justified in their criticism. And speaking of church history, this is nothing new. In the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, preaching in London, found himself needing to fight this same spirit among many who were self-identified as Christians in his church. In his famous little book, The Soul Winner, he found it necessary to say such things as the following, and I quote, Though nowadays we hear of persons being healed before they have been wounded and brought into certainty of justification without ever having lamented their condition, we are very dubious as to the value of such healings and justifyings. This type of thing is not according to truth. God never clothes men until he has stripped them first, nor does he quicken them by the gospel till first they are slain by the law. When you meet a person in whom there is no conviction of sin, you may be quite sure that they have not been wrought upon by the Holy Spirit, for when he is come, he will prove, he will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, end quote. The fear of God has left the church. The fear of the Lord has vanished among God's people. And the whole point of the passage before us this morning is that when a man or woman receives a new relationship with Jesus Christ, they also, not should also, but they also invariably find within them a brand new relationship with sin. Now let me take a moment to, to help you see this without a doubt, that freedom from sin is the main point of the passage, right? As, as expositors, we're always looking for the main point of the passage, so that we can make sure that we're saying what Paul wanted to have said. And so let me just walk you through this. How do we know that this is the point of the passage? Let me, let me show you. Verse 1, Paul says, Are we to continue in sin? Verse 2, Shall we live in sin? Verse 6, That you will no longer be slaves to sin? Verse 12, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your bodies to sin. Verse 14, sin shall not have dominion over you. Or I think the NAS says, it will not be your master. Unfortunately, anyone who looks for gospel opportunity on a regular basis would tell you that the majority of people 
with whom we speak, especially here in the South, they will at the same time claim to be Christian and unashamedly parade their personal habitual delight in sin at the same time. But if the Bible is right, and it is, such persons remain under the dominion of sin and are, listen carefully, they are unknown by Christ. The last couple of times we met in our study of this passage, I emphasized the reality that Paul, Paul is teaching about sanctification, and indeed he is. But I want to remind you this morning that this section in this portion of Romans sits within a larger context, and the larger context transcends just or, or sanctification. Notice the first few words of this chapter, chapter 6. Paul says, What shall we say then? What does the then refer to? The question points back to what Paul was teaching us before when he came to, to chapter 6. And the focus of, of what he was saying before chapter 6 was all about the absolute assurance of salvation that every true believer has because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So let me remind you of, of these things, these, these statements that give us assurance by just pointing them out in kind of bullet point formation. For example, in chapter 4, Paul tells us the marvelous good news that in the courtroom of heaven, sinners are declared righteous, not on the basis of their law-keeping, but on the basis of faith. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. Beloved, can I, can I put a name on this? Let's call this abounding grace. What did our justification bring us? Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, that it secured for us peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I give that a name? This is abounding grace. Moreover, through Jesus, chapter 5, verse 2, we have also obtained access into the very presence of God. You know what that is? It's abounding grace. Not only that, but in chapter 5, verse 3, we learn that now, uh, now we have the ability to rejoice even in the midst of our sufferings because God uses it to change our character and fill us with hope. And that hope never disappoints because it is lavishly bestowed upon us along with the love of God which comes to us in the Spirit. All of these things. You know what we can call those? We can call those abounding grace. And then, by the way, the ultimate way in which God demonstrates his love for us, chapter 5, verse 8. Everybody knows Romans 5, 8. If you can't quote it, you should go home and work on it after this. Romans 5, 8 was in the fact that while we were still sinners... What happened? Christ died for us. You know what we can call that, beloved? Abounding grace. 
Therefore, chapter 5, verse 9, the blood of Jesus saves us from the wrath of God. And he did it when we were still enemies. That is abounding grace. He did it while we were still enemies. Not good law keepers, not good churchgoers, when we were enemies. For people who thought that the only way to be counted righteous in God's sight is by keeping the law, this was too much. And so they accused Paul, chapter 3, verse 8, of antinomianism. You remember that? Uh, two Greek words, anti means against, and namas means law, so this is against the law. In other words, they were accusing Paul of being lawless, which he was not, as we'll see in chapter 7. They accused him of teaching that the free, abounding grace of God is nothing more than a license to sin. If you tell people that the ones who are saved and justified by God are the ungodly, then we should be ungodly. And it was a complete fallacy. They were twisting Paul's words, God's words. But nothing could be further from the truth. It's important to note here, however, that all of us are sometimes practical antinomians. You and I and everyone in this room, everyone hearing me, if you claim to be a believer, if you're honest with yourself, there are moments when you are a practical antinomian. I almost wrote a little thing here, you might be an antinomian if. <laughs> Whenever you find yourself tempted by some stubborn sin, probably that you've dealt with before, maybe you've battled it for uh, a few hours, may, maybe only a few minutes, and you give in to that temptation, saying to yourself, well, I might as well just give in. I'm not really winning the fight. And after all, God will, what? Forgive me. That's lawless. That's practical antinomianism. To the contrary, the grace that saves us is the grace that sanctifies us, purifies us, and changes us from the inside out. Jerry Bridges lends clarity to this issue when he, in his excellent little book, The Pursuit of Holiness, writes the following. Therefore, we may say that no one can trust in Christ for true salvation Unless, unless he trusts him for holiness. Now this doesn't mean that the desire for holiness will, will be a conscious desire at the time the person comes to Christ, but rather that the Holy Spirit who creates within us saving faith also creates within us a desire for holiness. He simply does not create one without the other. And someone will rightly ask, why do Christians necessarily have a new relationship with sin? Why do they necessarily have a new relationship with sin? And as we learned last week, we obtained a new relationship with sin because, number one, in Christ we have died to sin. In Christ we have died to sin. When did we die to sin? Well, we died the very moment 
we became alive to God. The moment you believe, you began to live. And the moment you began to live, you died. That is, we all died to sin. Now we need to remember that when Paul is talking about sin in this context, not in all contexts, but in this context, he is thinking not so much about individual acts of sin or temptations to sin, but rather the dominion or the kingdom of sin. And that's why it's important, or at least helpful, when we see the translation that sin will not be your master in the NAS. This is not individual sins. It's the domain of sin. It's the kingdom of sin. It's the tyrant of sin. All of us were born in the kingdom or the realm of sin. But we were not only born into it, we were also enslaved to it. To be sure, that's why Jesus came to die. Beloved, this is why Jesus came. This was our helpless state in Adam. And my friend, if you've come to church this morning with a burden of guilt and sin pressing upon your soul, I'm here to tell you, you have come to the right place. In fact, Jesus has a message for you that he wants you to hear right now. And it's not a message I'm going to make up. I haven't heard from the, the Lord directly, but I can tell you what he says in his word. He says this, come to me, all of you who are weary with a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you rather than the heavy burden of sin. Take my yoke upon you. For my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In fact, it's no burden at all. In theological terms, he came to bear the legal penalty for your sin so that you could be free. Now back to our text. Paul said we died to sin. It's appropriate to ask, why did we die to sin? Excuse me, how did we die to sin? How did we die to sin? Well, the text says we were baptized into his death. How is that possible? It's possible because he is our representative head. Adam used to be our representative head. But now in Christ... Jesus is our representative head. When you were born again, you were united to Christ in such a way that whatever, whatever Jesus has is now yours, and everything that you have belongs to him. And that means that Christ, in Christ, all your sin was laid upon him, and all his righteousness was laid upon you. Stuart Balaban, a little while ago, read... 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul says it like this, chapter 6, verse 4. All of us who were baptized into or united with Christ were baptized into his death. So the question is this. 
How can people who are united with Christ, having died and been buried with him in his death, how can people such as these continue in the same relationship with, this, with sin as they had before they knew Christ? How can they continue to live the way they lived before? And Paul's answer, it is not possible. If you have the Spirit of God, if the Holy Spirit of God comes into your heart, your soul, you will change. You don't have to beg him to change you. Oh, it's appropriate. He will change you. And that brings us to the second point. First, Christ, in Christ we have died to sin. Secondly, in Christ we were raised to holiness. Let's review verses 5 and 6. Watch this. For if we have been united with him in, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, may be useless, may be powerless in your life. You know the narrative of the passion of Jesus Christ, right? He lived... In a sin-ravaged world, he was tempted in the same way that we are tempted, yet without sin. He died legally bearing the sin of all who would believe. And he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And then, on that first glorious Easter Sunday morning, Jesus burst forth alive. Death was swallowed up in life. A new life, a different kind of life. It's a better life. No longer would, be he, would he be confined to a world of sin. Nor would he suffer under the, the constant penalty or pressure of sin. After the resurrection, he was the same man, but he was a different man. He was a man who could never again experience death. This is one of the most remarkable things about Jesus, is that he was God, immortal, invisible God, and yet he could die. He had to become a man so that he could die. And that's what he did. And when he died... He rose again, back to the place where it all started, at the right hand of God. In this verse, verse 5, repeats the same idea as the previous section. That is, union with Christ, in union with Christ, we died to sin. Now we have a new relationship with sin. As Jesus arose again from the dead, so we have been raised to walk in newness of life. Does that sound familiar? I mean, every time we do baptism, right? I usually do the baptisms, and when I dunk them underwater, I always say, buried with him in death, raised to walk in what? In newness of life. This is where that comes from. This is what baptism pictures. You die, you go under the water, you, it's a symbol of death. You died with Christ. And when you come out, symbolically, it is Christ coming out of the tomb. You come with him. But you don't just come with him to continue being the same person you've always been. Now you come out 
through glorious spiritual resurrection by the Holy Spirit, and you become a new person. It doesn't mean everything about you changes, but it does mean you have a new relationship with sin. And you have a new relationship with righteousness, which is coming. And so in verse 6, here's what we find. Our old self, which refers to who we were in Adam. He also uses the word here, or the phrase, the body of sin. Both of these refer to our fallen human nature without the indwelling spirit. We would say this is B.C., before Christ. In Christ, however, that previous version of me doesn't exist anymore. Now the, the merit of Christ's death is mine, and the penalty of my sin is paid in full. When Paul wrote his second letter to the church of Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, another scripture that you probably have memorized, if anyone is in Christ... He is a what? A new creature. A new creature. This is creation language, right? God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shed abroad in our hearts to bring us the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is creation language. You have been recreated. If anyone is in Christ, that is in union with Christ, You've been recreated. The old has passed away. The new has come. It's not that everything has passed away, but it is significant change. Some things are now out, and other things are in. Sin is out. Righteousness, true, practical righteousness is in. And we love Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Ken Basinger always reminds me, don't forget verse 10, for we are his workmanship, that's creation language, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works that he's prepared for us beforehand. What does that mean? It means that you have righteousness to do. You turn your back on sin and you start living righteously. You start pursuing holiness. And it's not because, by the way, I'm going to talk about this in a few minutes, maybe. Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> in a few minutes, I'm going to talk about the indicatives again, right? He hasn't given us any commands yet. He hasn't told us to do anything yet. And that'll become more glorious here as we go. In Christ, however, the previous version of me is done. I remember uh, when we first moved to, I think we moved to Fort Worth, and uh, I, had, I had one friend growing up uh, that I was close to, and both of us were unbelievers, and we did a lot of bad stuff. And, um, and years went by, I, I moved on, and and uh, came to Fort Worth, God's country, and got saved. No, not really, but uh, got saved in New York. That's shocking, right? And, um, and the phone rings, and it's this guy, this old friend of mine. And we used to do everything together. And you know, it only took about 30 seconds to realize he has no idea who I am. 
He is exactly who he had always been. But I, I could hardly stand to talk with him because I, I had to keep interrupting and saying, my friend, we don't do that anymore. No, we don't talk about that anymore. No, that's not where I live anymore. It was always awkward. Why? Because when the Holy Spirit came into my life, he changed things. Sometimes painfully. Many times painfully. When Paul wrote his, his, uh, his letter to the church in Galatia, Galatians 2.20, here's what he said very similarly. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is no longer my life. It's not my life. I don't own my life. It belongs to Jesus who purchased me on the cross, who indwelt me by his spirit. He gets to do anything with my life that he wants. And I need to hear that. At the end of verse 6, he tells us what the goal of all of this is, namely, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Once again, Paul is pointing the, to the believer's new relationship with sin. It doesn't rule you anymore. You don't have to obey it anymore. You've been raised from the dead to live a new kind of life. A life no longer dominated by sin. A life not in the throes of enjoying sin. A life no longer enslaved by sin. A life in which you have the desire and the power to live a life that honors the Lord rather than just enjoying sin. And sin, as we know from Proverbs and the Psalms, it is pleasurable for a moment, but afterwards it brings death. Does that mean that believers can live in sinless perfection, as some profess? No. If that were the case, then there are a number of statements that Paul makes here that wouldn't make any sense. For example, he says in verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Well, if you are sinlessly perfect, this is, that, I mean, that didn't need to be said. I mean, it's useless. That's useless material. So he's telling us to do something. I'm jumping ahead here a little bit. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body is a command, but Paul hasn't gotten there yet. Look at verse 13. I'll diverge again. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Why would he say that if it were possible for us to be sinlessly perfect? Of course, believers will still sin. Of course they will. But listen carefully. You can no longer love it and live in it the way you did before. To the contrary, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, if you have been born again to a living hope, you hate your sin. And you're quick to run to the Father in honest confession and eager to receive his fatherly forgiveness, which he says, this is interesting, all this legal language, right? 
And we love this passage, but, I, but sometimes we don't make all of the connections. If we confess our sins, he, the judge, the Father, is faithful and just and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is the way we treat sin. It's no longer the defining pattern of your life. And so first, we learned that in Christ we have died to sin. Second, we learned that in Christ we have been raised. And now, finally, in Christ we are free. We are free. Look at verses 7 through 10. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And the implication is, it had a kind of dominion in the moment that he bore it all for us on the cross. He no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all which was a favorite phrase of the author of Hebrews, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And what Paul is saying is, in a, in a very real and, and often practical sense, it's a legal sense and practical sense, or a legal sense with practical applications, is that when Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross, was buried, rose again, it was a picture, but it was more than a picture. It was just the reality, the spiritual reality that when a Christian comes to Christ, remember Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must follow me, take up his cross and follow me, die to self, live for Christ. These verses present Paul's summary. The summary of what he has taught so far. Let me try to compress this. You who are now in union with Christ, you are now in union with Christ because of superabounding grace. That is not a license to sin. It's just a glorious reality, a gift. Paul refers to it again and again as the free gift, the free gift, the free gift. We are also ones who died to sin because of superabounding grace. Furthermore, you are also raised to live a righteous and holy life by the power of superabounding grace. It's not a license to sin. It is the motivation and the power to pursue holiness. And since you died in union with Christ's death, sin has no dominion over you. Sin cannot be your master. And since you were raised in union with Christ, you are set free. When he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. The seal of proof of death, he was buried. Then he rose again, and Paul is saying, that's what it should be for you. No, 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 I said that wrong. 
That's what it is for you. That's what it is. This is who you are. This is the new you. Again, he hasn't commanded you to do anything yet. He's just saying, this is the new you, if you have Jesus. Adam is no longer your representative head in the eyes of God. Therefore, sin is no longer your master, your Lord. You have been set free. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this brings us to Paul's application. This is not my application. This is Paul's application. You could just write that in your notes because I didn't have anyone put that in your notes because I didn't think of it till yesterday. <clears throat> Paul's application. How should we respond to these truths? How should we respond to these truths? Now, this is the part where we're going to talk about the indicatives. Before we touch on what Paul is going to now tell us what to do. He wants us to know this. That everything that he has revealed to us thus far is in the indicative mood. And if that doesn't strike you as making any sense, when we talk about indicatives, I think I mentioned this last week, I know I did to my small group. These are facts. These are what is true, what is real, what is factual. These are indicatives. That is, he's not commanded us to do anything that would be an imperative. His focus has been entirely on the settled and glorious fact regarding what God has done for you and to you in Christ. Consider this abbreviated list. In Christ, this is who you are and what God has done. Again, he's not asking you to do anything yet. He's just... He's just talking about what the Holy Spirit has done in your heart from the moment that you, you were saved. You were, you were brought to life and you were brought into death. You were baptized with him. So here we go. You have union with Christ, number one. Number two, you have peace with God, chapter five. You have access to God, chapter five. You have purpose for life. You have unmitigated hope. You have died to sin. You have been raised to new life. You have been set free from sin's tyranny. All of that is indicative. It is who you are and what God has done for you. You're just sitting at his feet listening to this. He's telling you who you've become since he has adopted you. And you're sitting there like a child. You're going, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. Your father hasn't commanded you to do anything. The main thing I want you to know about that is you don't get these things by obeying the commands. You get these things. Now, obey the commands. You say, well, what are the commands? Well, we'll talk about that again next time, but... Let me, let me touch on it a little bit. In his excellent little book, Christianity and Liberalism, J. Gresham Machen says the following. This is, this is not a book about Romans 6. He's dealing with liberalism and Christianity. But this applies. Listen. 
here is found the fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood commands. While Christianity begins with a triumph of indicative, liberalism appeals to man's will, while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. Grace comes first. Grace is the foundation. Grace is what God has done and is doing in your life long before he ever gives you a single command. So what is the proper response to those who are in Christ? Those who are in Christ should offer to the Lord in response to the superabounding grace, what? Should we take grace and turn it into a license of sin to, to sin? Meganoita. Rather, Paul wrote in 11 through 14, follow along with this. Let not sin, therefore, you know what the therefore is? All, everything that I've preached on for three weeks. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make it your slave, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, which is what you're being accused of. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin, will not have dominion over you. Notice he doesn't say, sin should not, or you should fight it really hard. Rather, sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, embrace your new relationship with sin by rejecting sin. It's time to defriend sin. It's time to excommunicate it. It's time to pursue holiness and the fear of the Lord for the glory of your Savior and for your own lifelong joy. Beloved, this is all about the glory of God and the joy of his people. There's no joy in sin. There may be a little pleasure. And afterwards, if you're a child of God, there will be guilt and shame. And yes, there'll be forgiveness. But that forgiveness should motivate us to pursue holiness and righteousness. By God's grace, I believe that's what he's doing at Calvary Bible Church. I have a realtor friend who says, um, maybe, maybe uh, humility should keep me from saying this, but he said, I, I know of a lot of churches because I do a lot of real estate. He says, I tell everybody I know when we get talking about religious things and churches, 
He said, yeah, 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 that's a great church, that's a great church, that's a great church. But the holiest people I know are Calvary Bible Church. And you know what? If that's true, it's the work of the Spirit. It's the indicative. It is what God has done and what God is doing. John MacArthur talks about if you preach hard sermons, this is a hard sermon. It produces soft people. People who are soft and pliable in the hands of the Spirit of God, who weep over their sin, and they rejoice over righteousness. They love Christ. They love his word. They love his people. And do they sin? Yes, they sin. But they hate their sin. Do you have a new relationship with sin? If not, you need one desperately. And you can have it today if you come and receive it. I'm not talking about walking down an aisle. Just saying in your heart, cry out to God. Lord, I have nothing to offer you but my sin. Would you receive me? And his promise is, he will never turn you away. Grace, beloved, never promotes a life of sin. Rather, it emancipates us from slavery to sin. Lord, thank you for these words of great hope and encouragement. May it cause us to fear the Lord and enjoy the Lord now more than ever. Make us a holy church. Make us holy people. Pray, Father, that in the very practical decisions we make even this day, we'll be righteous and holy. We are not antinomian. Help us, Father, not to be practical antinomians in our decisions today. And help us, O oh Father, to rejoice in it all for your glory and for our own joy, we pray.